today is the beginning of Advent. If you're unfamiliar with what Advent is, the word just simply means arrival. And it's a, it's a way in which the Christians throughout the years have actually articulated or created or crafted an actual calendar throughout the year to help them develop certain rhythms to uh, shape them as, as people of God. Um, and this is one of the ways in which they do that. These regular, like yearly, in some cases monthly, in some other cases uh, weekly, and in some cases daily rhythms, cadences that Christians have established in order to help them re-engage the gospel that God calls us into. That's what we're entering into now, this season of Advent. One of the things that we're going to be doing each week of Advent, four of them, in total, is we will have a time where we will light a candle. We will also have a scripture reading um, uh, by a different family or a different member in our church community that will be doing this. This particular week, we actually have the Ainsworth family, so how about you guys come on down, and you guys have the little mic for you, with you? All right? Come on down. Why don't we welcome the Ainsworth family. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived, and her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And as we enter into this season, mentioned earlier, one of the things that we want to do in this season, as we consider the coming, the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, uh, we also do this with an understanding that Jesus will one day come again. So we are not only looking back as followers of Jesus, but we are also looking forward to what one day Jesus will come to do to make all things new. And with that, what this does, this instills within us, it shapes within us, these ideas, these values of hope, love, peace, and joy. Hope, love, peace, and joy. I think all of us would acknowledge that we need more hope, love, peace, and joy in our world. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that you need more hope, love, peace, and joy in your own lives, in your own families? in your own places of work, in your own neighborhoods. We all need hope, love, peace, and joy. And this is what Jesus has come to accomplish. So each week as we look at another theme, uh, this actually syncs up really well with the teaching series that we've been doing on Sunday mornings and going through the Gospel of John. So uh, last week, if you were here, uh, Luke, one of our elders, taught on John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So fortunately enough, we are now going to take a look at John chapter 3, verse 16, a very familiar verse to most of you, uh, for God so loved the world share it in just a moment that you guys are all familiar with. And this will basically form the basis of what we will be looking at over the next four weeks of 
with regard to these variety of themes. So with that being said, I have kind of outlined, and let me show you the quick little outline here, guys. You can put the slide up there of what the next four weeks will look like. So week one, sorry, do I have the slide up there? This is week one, week two, week three. There we go, there we go. So this whole idea, each week we will take a look at a different aspect of John 3, 16. I'll read that in just a moment. Um, but it shows us, this idea of God, how he equates or links up with this concept of hope. And then next week, next week, we will take a look at the subject of love. God so loved the world. And then next, in verse, uh, week three, we'll take a look at the subject or the topic or the value of peace. Um, this links up with the person of Jesus because Jesus is actually described as the Prince of Peace. And then last movement or last week of Advent, we'll take a look at the subject of joy and how this links to get together with the idea of eternal life, something which Jesus comes to bring. So with that, I want to read John 3.16. Just go ahead and listen to it. Uh, this is a very familiar verse for many of you, so this is going to be hard to listen to it afresh. But I want to pray real quick first as we enter not only into the season, but also as we read the Scripture, that it would just... Uh, create a freshness and newness in our understanding of who God is and what God has come to do. So let me pray, and then I'll read, and then we'll jump into some ideas. So Father, right now we come to you and we ask you that you would just awaken us in fresh new ways. God, we admit that it's really easy for us to become overly familiar with the story of Jesus, overly familiar with the story of his birth, and it becomes meaningless to us. And God, we don't want that to be the case. We ask you right now for a fresh reading, a fresh pondering, a fresh considering who you are, what you've come to do, uh, as well as a fresh reading of this passage, that you would speak to us in ways uh, that are unexpected and that would recreate a vision of beauty and of goodness for us. So we commit this morning in your hands as well as the remainder of this season. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3.16 goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This first week is the idea of hope. We'll make some comments about hope in just a moment on this particular passage. But what we will be doing as well throughout the season is each week the uh, passage will be not only accompanied with an actual theme, but that theme will also be accompanied by an actual video clip from the Bible Project because they do such a great job in encapsulating so much truth and content and beauty in such a short amount of time. So let's watch this little clip on hope and then we'll get to some teaching. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. 
So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, At this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires, and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Peace of glory. In both cases, this El Peace is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to just take a look at three specific things in terms of the anatomy of hope. In other words, if I were to think of the idea of hope, why and how do we really articulate hope? How did the Bible, uh, uh, people in the Bible or the actual um, subjects in the Bible, how did they, the characters in the Bible, how did they think about hope? And I think there's three ways in which that will help us to articulate and think through this. What I love about this particular passage, though, is it begins by saying, for God so loved the world. So it begins with God. God is a driving force. God is the initiator in this entire thing. So one of the things that I want for us to think about in three movements with regard to this anatomy, and I'll just kind of throw them out one by one. We'll just take a look at them each uh, bit at a time. So number one, the anatomy of hope involves a God who is present. Secondly, involves a God who is good. 
thirdly involves a God who is faithful to keep his promises. The first idea is a God who is present. A God who is present. Some of you might not be familiar with the idea of the death of God theology or death of God theologians. But I would say over the past 100 to 150 years, this has been a major undercurrent movement that's been happening, especially in the West, throughout Europe, but especially in the West, Western countries, where there's been this massive movement where many scholars and theologians have basically crafted a theology that God is absent. If at best, if he is there, he's indifferent. He's apathetic. He doesn't care about your suffering. He doesn't care about your pain, your sorrow, your hardship. He's just simply cold and indifferent. And this kind of crafted this idea over the past 150 years of the death of God theology. And so again, if I were to start labeling some of these theologians, you probably would not know who any of them are because they they're kind of nameless for most of us. But what you will know is how that theological framework gets played out in the larger culture that we live in. So for example, if you are familiar with phrases like this, you do you. Live your most authentic self. Or here's another one. That's my truth. Those are literally ideas that are borrowed from this idea of the death of God theology. And they are there because if God is not there, if God is not alive or present, then you and I are the masters of our life. You and I are the ultimately ones that are responsible for cultivating and developing what meaning, purpose, and value in life are all about. And so that's why those ideas, those concepts, get kind of injected into the culture at large because we are operating on the supposition that God does not exist. So therefore, you have to instill meaning and purpose and value yourself. Let me put it into the words of Nietzsche. If you are familiar with him, he was not a Christian. He was definitely an atheist, and he was the guy who even coined the phrase, God is dead. Listen to what he said. God is dead, and we have killed him. Yet his, shallow, yet his shadow still looms. This is really fascinating to me. I, I actually find Nietzsche very fascinating of a, uh, of, of a philosopher. Listen, he goes on to say, Yet his shadow still looms. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all has bled to death under our knives. What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of, our, of atonement shall there be to invent, to purge our misdeeds? Is not the greatness of this God too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear, to appear worthy of it all? And so what Nietzsche was known for is that this idea as a culture, and he was kind of referring to the cultural idea or aspects or artifacts of God that were linked to institutions of God, like the Catholic Church and whatnot. Um, and he was identifying the fact that at, at large, in culture, God was dying. We live, I think it would be safe to say, in a post-Christian world. That Christian Christianity at one point was at the center of culture and life, but today it is not the center. If anything, it's kind of marginalized. It's pushed off to the side. And not only that, any type of talking about God or Christianity is oftentimes viewed with disdain. And this is the idea of the death of God. So then the question that Nietzsche is basically saying is if God is dead, if God does not exist, God is not here, God is not present, then where do we develop and cultivate ideas like morals or ethics or human dignity or value or respect? Or human rights, or human ethics. Where do we get those from? Because if in reality all that is left to 
exist is your truth, your authentic self, your idea of what's right and what's wrong, then what's to say that the person with the strongest hand is able to establish their truth? In other words, like an authoritarianism, which, by the way, Nietzsche was prior to Nazi Germany, which no doubt took and borrowed certain ideas and philosophical concepts into, that injected into this authoritarian value, that someone's life is only valuable in the extent that I deem it as valuable. The big idea is that what the Christian concept is, is that God himself says that life is valuable because it bears his image. But if God is dead, and the content about God is dead, and the knowledge about a personal God is dead, then everything that God has given in an answer for the meaning and purpose of life is also dead as well. And here's where it gets really insane. And that means ultimately that the burden for your future and hope lay entirely, please listen to me, lay entirely on your shoulders to cultivate and develop. Do you realize how exhausting that is? You are responsible for the development of how sin will be taken care of, how wrongs will be made right, what justice looks like, whose life is valuable, whose life is not valuable. That's exhausting. And this is exactly what it means. And we live literally in this world today that sees us ultimately as the highest value, that God is dead, therefore we create our own world around us. And honestly, this is one of the reasons why we live in this culture that is so filled with contradictions. Because on the one hand, we know life is valuable. We know it intrinsically it's valuable. We know it's not okay to just go take the life of another human being. We know this. But how do we know this if God is dead? And ultimately what this does is it leads to a life of total abject despair. The opposite of hope. And this is why it's so crucial to know that as we enter into the season of Advent, that first and foremost, the fact that God is present breathes this sense of hope and hopefulness into this world. That God is present. He's not far off. And this leads us into the next thing, which is awesome. The anatomy of hope not only involves a God who is present, but also involves a God who is good. So this becomes the next aspect. Because if a God is present, that's only awesome if that God is good. What if that God is a nightmare? What if that God is a tyrant? What if that God is a totalitarian, angry, selfish human, uh, you know, uh, character on the planet, in, in the cosmos? What if he is a monster? Then that's terrible. His presence does not bring peace does not bring hope, it brings absolute terror. Which then leads me to my next idea, is that this God also is incredibly good. So hope not only involves a God who is present, it also involves a God who is good. How do we know he's good? Over and over and over again throughout scripture, God rearticulates his goodness. Now yes, I would admit there has been a massive propaganda campaign throughout all time to rearticulate who God is. Not as good, but as a monster. But again, we're also told, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, that there is a propagandist who's out there whose sole aim is to try to distort the very teachings of Scripture. 
And his aim is only to confuse, to destroy, to drive you away, to cause you to feel that you are not safe in the presence of this God, that you must protect yourself. You must put up your walls of defense because this God, if you let him near you, he will destroy you. That is the propaganda. But over and over and over again, Scripture rearticulates this God who's good. And ultimately, when you get to the person of Jesus, and you see, what's Jesus doing? Every single time he interacts with human beings, he's always doing good. In fact, we're even told that Jesus went about doing good everywhere he went, doing good. How and why? Because he represents the God who is good. So, for example, Exodus chapter 34, verse 3, God himself speaks and declares, this is what he says, the Lord abounding in goodness. He doesn't just have goodness on drizzle, (laughs) a little bit here and there, a little bit to distribute. God is abounding in goodness. I can't even think of a parallel to someone that abounds in goodness. The goodest person I know, I know that's not a real word, I I would not describe them as abounding in goodness. I certainly don't abound in goodness, but God abounds in goodness, which then leads us to the last thing. Number one, the anatomy of hope involves a God who is present. Number two, it involves a God who is good. And then lastly, it involves a God who is faithful to keep his promises. Because if a God who is present is also a God who is good and makes these promises, the hope would be that he has power and he's faithful to actually make good or carry through on his promises. I think all of us in this life are looking for someone that will make good on their promises. All of us. All of us at some point in life have been involved with people that have not made good on their promises. Maybe it was a marriage in which there was a betrayal there, in the ache, in the pain, in the acute challenge that that has caused upon your life and the trauma that has been there. That is destructive and painful. We've all been involved in relationships. We want somebody that will make good on their promises to us. And when it doesn't, it leaves us in a place of cynicism and brokenness and pain. And yet what we see with the God of the Bible over and over and over again, ultimately climax in the person of Jesus coming into this world, we see a God who is making good on his promises. And I'll finish with two passages that I find so fascinating in the book of Revelation, which is where the entire book is heading towards. And let's listen to what John tells us, who is also the writer of John 3.16, about this future in which one day God will come again. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, I'll read that. So if you're writing this down, you can write that down. Or in, as well as Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read them both, and I'm done. Revelation 11, verse 15 says this. And there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Right now, when we look out on the kingdoms of this world, what do you see? I see a lot of pain. I was just reading a story in Afghanistan of women that have lost their husbands because men are oftentimes the first to die in cultures like that. And so they're left with their children. And because there's no food right now in Afghanistan, they're having to make really hard decisions, whether to drive their children into various forms of trafficking or even selling their children in order to pay for food for the other children. It's mind-blowing to me. In Ukraine, we're all familiar with the constant recurring events. We see even 
African countries like Yemen and places that are filled with war and pain. We even see places throughout Europe that in this post-Christian era where people are just filled with knowledge yet filled with deep degrees of anxiety. We live in our culture where we have more connection than ever before, but our people in our cultures and our communities are filled with levels of anxieties that are off the charts. We see a world filled with pain and hardship and difficulty. And you know what the promise is that one day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, or behold, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has finally passed away. Who, who, he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. These are the promises. The faithful God says that he will make good on. How do we know this? Because he's good. How do we know this? Because he's present. How do we know this? Because of Advent. Jesus came. We celebrate a historical fact that literally shaped and changed the world in which we live in. And literally, this fact, this historical story that had an impact 2,000 years ago and throughout all the past 2,000 years can still continue to break through and change the way you and I think about our lives today as we go on into the season. My hope for you would be whatever place of discouragement or despair or dissatisfaction or cynicism, wherever you find yourself, that you would discover this God who is present, who is good, and ultimately is faithful to keep all of his promises. I'm going to invite us all to stand, and I'm done. You're welcome. Isn't that a great sermon? Short, sweet. Some of you are like, is he going to keep going? No, I'm done. Let's all stand. And I want to pray over us. Because again, I told you, this is a family-style service. We do things a little bit differently than a family-style service. Some of you are like buckled in. You're like ready for a really long sermon. Not today. That's next week. I'm going to go twice as long next week. But I want to pray over us right now. So I, I want to invite you into a practice as well. So why don't you just close your eyes. And uh, I, I want to invite you to just, even in this moment, to just consider the God who is present. What does that mean for you right now? Not if, but because God is present. Because God is good. And because God makes good on his promises. What does that mean for you right now in this moment? In the status of your world. In the confusion of your soul. In the chaos you find yourself in. The God who has done great things. For generations and generations of people in the past. What does that mean for you right now today? Do you believe? That God could bring life. That he can bring true light into the darkness. That he can bring peace. 
out of the chaos. Just call upon him and ask him, God, show me yourself. Maybe in this season of wondering, take a step of faith and invite God to make himself real to you. And Father, right now, I just pray that as we step into this season considering the arrival of Jesus in the one-day event in which you will put all things to right and you will make all things new, God, as we find ourselves in this middle space, this middle state, with so much information, so much chaos, so much proneness towards anxiety, so much craziness in our lives, God, I pray that you would meet us in ways like we've never even dreamt of before. That you would bring peace in those places that we would never even have imagined. That you would bring order in those places, God, that are just flooded with disorder. We love you, Jesus. We say thank you to you for who you are, what you've come to do, and we place our confidence and our hope in you in the midst of this. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. We all say and now may the, may, may the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God, we say every single week, be yours. Receive that as you go into the rest of this week. This is the God who is with you, who is good, who will make good on his promises. Love you guys. Have a great week, and we'll see you.